True Multifamily is an On Air Brands production and a proud member of the On Air Brands Network. This is True Multifamily, the show where we dive in on what really happens after closing a multifamily property. We're going to expose the role of asset manager. That's a person who has a responsibility of seeing the vision, executing the plan, and managing people, budgets, and timelines, all to deliver returns for our investors. These are the real struggles, the real victories, and the real stories of asset management. Welcome back to another episode of True Multifamily. I am here with Mr. Dave Foster. Dave is known as the 1031 Investor. Dave, thanks for joining me today. Hey, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, Dave, 1031s are so important. Everyone really talks about 1031s on the smaller scale side um, and, you know, Bigger Pockets promotes it a lot. And, and I think it's an incredible tool for people on the, on the smaller scale. But I'm so excited to talk to you today about multifamily investing. You know, our investors uh, invest in syndications. They are syndicators. They, they want or have, uh, you know, 40, 50, 100 unit properties or more. And uh, syndication is a, is a uh, sorry, 1031-ing is, is not really talked about very much. And, and it's usually a very nebulous answer. And, and so I am so excited to talk yeah. to you and really break down all of that. Yeah, I'm actually pretty used to that, by the way. The statute itself, most people don't even know, has been around for 100 years. Wow. It was actually part of the original tax code. But for 60 of those years, it was only practiced by the people who were heavily attorneyed up. Mm. So it was like this voodoo kind of thing. And then a huge lawsuit was settled back in the mid nineties. And all of a sudden these were user friendly for every investor in the world, but guess what? Nobody still knew about them. <laughs> so right. I'd go in to borrow money to bank. What do you do? I'm a qualified intermediary for 1031 exchanges. And they'd get squinty eyed and suspicious say, what's that? So my stock answer to the banks was, well, if I, I can tell you, but I'll have to kill you. There you go. That didn't go over well. <laughs> we, we had to change our borrowing structure after that. But yeah. no, it is something that just, it's not been mainstream, although it's been out there. But the ability for the normal investor now to use 1031 exchanges and, and to sell investment property that's either highly appreciated or that has a lot of backed up depreciation that would have to be recaptured mm -hmm. and go and use the proceeds to purchase new investment property and not have to pay that tax is also powerful. Absolutely. It defers it indefinitely, which then lets you use what Albert Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. There you go. You get to keep making money on the tax and then you get to make money on the money you made on the tax. And next thing you know, You've deprived Uncle Sam of a bunch and you've put a lot of that into your pocket. And that's okay and perfectly legal and encouraged by the tax code. That's exactly right. right. So, so great. Uh, I love that little, little tease there for everyone on 1031. And uh, I, I will say that I think most of our audience is fairly familiar with it. Most of our audience listens to Bigger Pockets and other real estate podcasts. They probably have done some 1031s, but let's start at the beginning because I want to hear from you. Like, how did you become the 1031 investor? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think the only way anybody becomes the anything is you have to get old first. So <laughs> I was right. <laughs> no, I was, uh, we kind of stumbled on it by accident because like, and, and you know, you mentioned bigger pockets several times. What an awesome, yeah. awesome platform and watering hole for investors mm -hmm. and want to be investors. 
when I read those stories, I get so encouraged and happy because I think, you know what? They're starting out exactly the way I did. My wife and I each had a career and we were happy doing it. But along came this little guy and our first son was born. And that just changed our whole perspective on jobs. We said, that's it. We are done riding the corporate train. So how can we get off? Because the corporate train doesn't have many stops, right? You just keep going. And the next thing you know, your kids are growing up and gone. And you really feel like you've missed an opportunity. So the folks that are exploring bigger pockets, looking for ways to find those off ramps. It's absolutely splendid idea. We were doing the same thing. And we hit upon the same idea that a lot of people were. Gosh, what if we were to start buying real estate? At that point in time, we were in Denver. It was highly depressed. All of you Denver folks listening out there, in 1993, I could buy three bedroom, two bath houses all over Denver for $1,000 down and $25,000 total. Man. Compare that to now, right? Denver is just popped off, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. So we decided to embark on that. Say, you know, that's a great strategy. Let's go try to get a bunch of properties and then we'll go do what we want to do, which was take our children and sail all around the world. Okay. So I bought a duplex. I fixed up the duplex. I sold the duplex. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I was all fat and sassy, baby. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I've done this. I was going to build up cash to then start buying our buying holds. I mean, it's it's the same story mm-hmm. that a million people have with the same ending. All was good until I visited my accountant mm-hmm. that winter. And Turbo Andy said, Dave, you realize there's a huge tax bill on this. <laughs> what? I had forgotten that I had a silent partner named Uncle Sam. Mm-hmm. And I lost almost 40% of my profit. I said, well, wait a minute. If I'm losing that much of my profit on every one of these fix and flips, there is no way we're going to get the scale that we need for our buy and holds. So while I was moping around about that, some very dear friends of mine, and you know how you know who your really dear friends are? They're the ones that don't hesitate to mock you. There you go. That's yeah. Right. So they were commiserating, actually laughing at me going, ah, we're starting a company that would help you avoid that. If you only knew. <laughs> no, thanks guys. Thanks. And then they said, would you like to join us? Yeah. So we did. And that was the start of the 1031 business over 20 years ago. And we've begun strong since then, because once I figured out the model, it was for myself and for others, it was a no brainer. I can build these things, I can buy these things, hold them for investment, then sell them and purchase two new properties using in part the government's tax dollars and then sell those two and buy four and grow my portfolio where I need to without having to worry about the tax. And that was the start of it. And it allowed us to actually be able within 10 years to buy our 53 foot sailboat with tax dollar, tax free dollars and move on to live for 10 years with our four boys. 
All right, so let's put a pin in the sailboat thing because I'm very excited for you to tell me that story. Um, but I, I want to to pause and give you a chance to explain uh, for those who may not know what is a 1031 and what are the uh, what are some of the rules around it, the common rules that we might need to know when we're trying to not have to pay taxes on a property. Yeah, because they become especially key when you're talking about wanting to go into certain exotic things. Like if you're wanting to go into a syndication, mm -hmm. there's some certain rules that can trip you up. But a 1031 in general, just at the 10,000 foot level, is the sale of investment property, followed by the purchase of new investment property with the process in the middle. Your activities are no different than normal. You go and find a piece of property you like, you buy it, you fix it up, you put a renter in it, you hold it, then you put it on the market, you sell it, and that starts your 1031 exchange. Now, that's important to know. The 1031 starts with the sale, which is counterintuitive to us because in the real estate world, we've all learned the mantra that you make money in real estate when you buy it. Buy it, of course but you keep more of your money when you sell it. And that's where the 1031 comes in. So you're selling real estate, following a process, buying investment real estate, and you get to avoid paying all of the tax that normally would have been associated with it. Now, it's a fairly constrained process in terms of time, because you only have 45 days to identify your potential replacement property. So right off the bat, you're under a time gun. 180 days to close, 45 to identify. Now, smart people will be looking for their new properties before their old properties close. Mm -hmm. But it's still not that much time. Now, that's challenge number one for the syndicators. Because when a syndicator is going to syndication, I should say, is going to sell its property, that means they have to either have their new target identified or they've only got 45 days to identify it. Yep. That's not a lot of time. Right. And in the world of due diligence and syndications, the great deals don't come up as often as you'd like sometimes. Correct. Absolutely. You know, or you may get four one time and none the next, right? You've either got too many choices or not enough. Right. And so what do you do? So that's challenge number one is working through the time constraints. Now, challenge number two falls in the taxpayer requirement. Whoever the taxpayer is for the old property has to be the same as the taxpayer for the new property. And I use that word taxpayer very deliberately because that doesn't just mean who's on deed. What it means is whose tax return is reporting the activity of that property. Because any taxpaying entity can do a 1031 exchange. Corporations, C-Corp, S-Corp, LLCs, trusts, individuals, everybody could do them. Okay. But whoever is that taxpayer for the old property has to be the same as the taxpayer for the new property. So challenge number two for syndications. John is selling a piece of property that's in his name. It's been reported on his tax return. He wants to buy into your syndication. Your syndication is set up so that it is either a limited partnership or an LLC that owns the property. Mm -hmm. Which means that if John were to buy a membership interest in the LLC or the LP, he's not buying real estate. Right. So he sold real estate, but he's not buying real estate. So he could not 1031 exchange. 
into that membership interest. Now, the LP or the LLC could carve out a certain amount of that property and actually sell to him what we would call a tenant in common interest okay. in the real estate itself, which means, let's say it was gonna be 5% of the entire project. John can sell his property, use a 1031 exchange and buy 5% interest in the real estate itself, which means John owns 5%, the syndication owns 95%. Mm -hmm. And then there's ways to combine that and work that together after the fact. But it's very important that John does that because he can't simply buy part of the syndication. So right off the bat, you see just that's huge in yeah. terms of an obstacle. Yeah, absolutely. You guys are dealing with financing all the time. Mm -hmm. Tell me how much fun that is anyways. <laughs> right, when it's straightforward, right. <laughs> Let um, alone if you're trying to put two tenants into what that if, thing. What if it, I'm coming from a company? So so let's say, so real, real world example, I did a 40 unit syndication and uh, that property, it, so that and the real estate is owned by a company. And in that company is my management entity and all of our limited partners. So we all together own the company that owns the real estate. Right. So we decide, let's say we're gonna sell it and make a profit. Uh, great, we don't wanna be, we as a company do not wanna be taxed on that. Can we then together go into a syndication? So now it's company to company. Yeah, well, that, not company into company so much, but you're on the right track. Okay. And that is that the company, because that's the taxpayer mm -hmm. for that property, could actually sell the property mm -hmm. and do a 1031 exchange of its own. All of the members of the company go along for the ride. Mm -hmm. Got it. But the company's doing the 1031 exchange. So you would then follow the rules in the process, buy the next target property, mm -hmm. and voila. That company now owns its new project. All tax was deferred. None of the members got a tax return. I mean, got a partnership return mm -hmm. reflecting any gain because it was all the 1031 exchange. And that's the way to do it. Unfortunately, though, that's where you run into those timing constraints. Right, right. Because the, the number of units you're looking at, they're not on every street corner. Right. And, and so, and but if you happen thing, to find one, that's a lot of tax you can defer, isn't it? Right. So then if I have, let's say I have 10 partners on that syndication and um, eight of them want to move forward with the 1031, but two do not. Um, how do I work it so that those two can exit and maybe take a gain and the rest move forward? Is that possible? Yeah, absolutely. Because remember, it is the company itself Mm -hmm. that's doing the exchange. The IRS doesn't care who the members of the company are. So it'd be very easy, well, very easy, as long as you got the cash and the, you know, wherewithal to do it, to simply tell those two members, fine, we're gonna buy out your interests in the company. And we're gonna give you this amount of money. And then we're also gonna subtract the tax that we're gonna have to pay because we gave you mm -hmm. some money. Mm -hmm. And so you then you net it of taxes, but then you go ahead in 1031 and you'll defer everything else. Got it. Okay. And one more point of clarification, uh, because uh, you said the taxpayer has to be the same on both. So if I, 
let's say I took my my 40 unit that we syndicated and the name of that entity that owns that is 123 Main Street LLC. And now we're buying a larger property, but we're joining someone else's syndication. It's not just us. And so we're actually going to be, could we become limited partners in somebody else's syndication that is not, not really associated with us, but we're putting our money so, into another property. So the question you would ask yourself to see if that would qualify is to say, are we buying real estate? Okay. And if you're buying real estate, like that other company mm -hmm. goes in with you as tenants in common. Mm -hmm. So they own 50% of the real estate. You own 50% of the real estate that would qualify. If you are buying a membership interest in their LP, that would not qualify. Got it. You got to sell real estate, buy real estate. I love 123 Main Street, by the way. I actually used to live in 123 Apple Valley Road. There you go. That was the most awesome address ever. <laughs> that is pretty ever awesome. Connecticut. Yeah. I know. I loved it. Yeah. I never uh, forgot okay. it. So that's actually very helpful. And, you know, we tend to name our LLCs um, like the address of the property LLC. Sure. Um, just to keep things organized. Um, and so, so I get that now. So if it's not that exact taxpayer and if it's not real estate to real estate, then it won't work. Uh, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, right. There's still some opportunities. Yeah. And as syndications mature, the good ones, we're starting to see them with more and more cash and doing more and more internal or mezzanine financing with a friendly company. And when they're doing that, you know, we're simply buying their next project with cash. When you do that, it's much easier to carve out that 5% tenant and common interest so that John can sell his property and use the proceeds to buy part of the real estate itself. It's when you're dealing with a large anonymous lending bank that you get into trouble. Actually, it's kind of a mantra for life, isn't it? If you're dealing with the large bank, you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I don't absolutely. know. Uh, please, no, maybe we maybe we should cut that out of the video. <laughs> we can edit this for you for sure. That's no right. Two people you never want to bet against, never bet against insurance companies and banks. There you go. They didn't both, go. but never bet against them. They're always gonna win. <laughs> no problem at all. Um so uh so then the end of the syndication comes and we've uh, most syndications now are doing cost segregation studies and we're, we're taking advantage of all the amazing tax benefits, um, sometimes bonus depreciation as well, which is really supercharging our, our write-offs here. Um, but at, at some point the tax man comes due, right? And, and so we've now done, taking all that depreciation, we're gonna sell. And this term that we don't hear as much talked about depreciation recapture. So talk to me a little bit about that and, and how the 1031 sort of works with that. That is like one of the nastiest little IRS secrets ever. Yeah. Um, because they're pretending to give you a gift, which is the pretend game that your property is going to reduce in value over time. Now, we know that that's not true, generally. Properties will go down, but in general, the trend is always up. So, but they, they're trying to give you this benefit of a tax write-off. Your property's losing value every year, so you get to write that off on your taxes, which reduces your income for that year, uh, but it 
that doesn't go away. It still sits out there and is waiting for the property to sell. Because when the property sells, the IRS comes in and says, ha, just kidding. All that gift that we gave you, we want it back because you sold the property and made a profit. And yet, even if you didn't sell the property for more than you paid for it, like assume for instance, you just had a mistake and you sell that property for exactly what you paid for it, but you owned it for 10 years, they're still going to tax you on what the depreciated basis is. So recapture means you get to pay back all of that tax. Mm -hmm. So you saved money while you owned the property, but then you get a huge tax bill at the end. Well, that's not even as good as kissing your cousin. No, (laughs) (laughs) that's just a bad, bad deal all the way around. What solves that is the 1031 exchange. Because when you do the 1031 exchange, you avoid not only the tax on profit, but you avoid depreciation recapture as well. And so that's why if you can work that 1031 exchange into your syndication, either as the syndicator or as an individual, it's hugely powerful for you. And for those of you who are saying, well, I just won't take depreciation, this is the worst of all. The IRS actually states it that you will be taxed on the depreciation you took or that you could have taken. Mm. So even if you don't take it, they want you to pay it. Yeah. So Uncle Sam got us both ways there. Well, you know, they give it and then they take it away, right? So I, I think what some folks are doing are, you know, you really have to juggle and plan, but as uh, you know, there's been such a push on, on syndications in the last few years. So naturally in, in the life cycle, the next two to five years, a lot of those syndications are going to be selling and people are going to need to know what to do. And so uh, I think if you can, it sounds like to me, what you're saying is if you can take the the whole company, you know, one or two people want to buy out, you can buy them out and you can arrange that. But it's best if that whole company then goes and 1031s into the next company. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and that provides so much fluidity in the transition as well. There's much less need to raise financing. I mean, how much of your job is raising funds? Oh, it's yeah, exactly. Right. That's huge. Well, right. You get a group of people together and you're having success. They want to stay together. Of course. Well, let's stay together in a way that lets us also defer the tax. Right. Right. Definitely. Now, a lot of people still we're left with the other side, right? How can I sell a property and do a 1031 exchange when I have to pay the tax? if I want to go into a syndication. And what some of our investors are are starting to do is to create a really sharp separation between their investing lives. They have one side of their investing life that is buy and hold. Properties they buy and they hold for productive use. Those are properties they can 1031 exchange. Whatever property stops performing, whether it's time to sell it or whatever, they will sell, they will do, will do 1031 exchanges into new property that they're going to hold the same way. But in the middle, they will follow the adage of our bigger pockets folks and use the Burr strategy, which I don't know if your listeners have heard of that one yet, yep. but yep. buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and then let's change that last R. Instead of repeat, let's release those refinanced funds to go buy a syndication. Mm. 
There you go. So I didn't have to do a 1031. I was able to use tax-free dollars of a refinance of a 1031 property to go buy a syndication. Now I'm wearing two hats, aren't I? Mm-hmm. I'm a buy and hold investor over here and I'm investing in syndications over here and I still haven't paid a penny in tax. Love that for sure. Well, uh, thanks for, for breaking that down for us. That, that makes a lot of sense. The The last piece of that though is the timeline. And, and that's the other thing that, that I have a hard time with is the, so it's 45 days to identify the property, correct? And 180 days from when? From closing that I have to close on the next one? Yeah, they're both from the, they both start with the closing of the sale. Exactly. Okay. So 180 days, you know, sounds like a lot, but uh, as you're syndicating and buying, you know, we're, we're buying a, uh, an $18.5 million property right now. And it takes a lot of time to do the due diligence and line up the financing and really, you know, raise the capital. So we want as much of those extensions as, as possible. And right. it sounds like it could be pretty tight on that timeline from the time we identify that. Pro- I'd have to go back and check when we identify the property to when we uh, are, are closing on it. I bet it's pretty close to 180 days. Right. Well, yeah, I know you're absolutely right. That's the big, and there's no exceptions and no extensions to that bad boy. Uh, I mean, personal ones. The IRS occasionally will give exceptions in the case of major disasters like they did for the COVID thing. Sure. But it, but it works only like this. The IRS said that anybody that had a time-sensitive filing deadline between April 6th and July 14th got to extend it to July 15th. So it was a gift. But it's not a forever gift. Right, right. And you got to be real careful with it. Justin, when you are buying a property, how long is it from when? Or I, let's talk about selling. When you're selling a property, you're going to sell it, and there's going to be a certain amount of due diligence on the other parts. There's going to be a finance mm-hmm. date. How long in between when all of the all of the contingencies are satisfied, do you typically go to closing? 30 to 60 days? Yeah. Yeah. I would say around the 30 day mark. Okay. So let's see how we can extend that 180 days. First of all, you're going to know 60 days prior to the closing of your sale that it's actually going to close. Now, you may have a real good idea before that, but let's deal with the for sures. All the contingencies are done. They have to perform. You've got 60 more days. So that's the 60 that you can add to that 180 right there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because now you start shopping around. Now, what if, let's back it up even further. What if they had satisfied their inspection contingency and they had another 45 days left to show you financing or 60 days. Let's say 60 days because it makes it easy. At that point in time, you've already examined their LOI and you've done some due diligence on them. So you're feeling pretty good about their financing. So maybe as soon as they had satisfied their due diligence contingents, you would start looking for your new property and get it under contract then. Because why? You know that you're going to have at least 60 days of due diligence and 60 days of finance contingency. So you're under contract for sale overlapping by four months with the contract for your purchase. So all of a sudden, six months 
just became 10 with plenty of exit clauses and outs during that time. That's really helpful. It's still going to keep you awake at night, trust me. Yeah. But it's not so bad. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. No, that, I love that. That that really actually clarifies it for me because you can – you know, start, but you don't have to wait till you close and then look up and say, Oh, time to, time to start looking. You know, we're going to be proactive. Of course, we're real estate investors. We're proactive. We're out there hustling. So of course we're going to be looking ahead. Um, so a few more things uh, before we wrap up, you, you promised me how you, a story about 1031 into a sailboat. So uh, let's break that down. Let's start with what you had and, and, and how you even thought about doing that. And, and let's hear it. Well, I still don't know how in the world we thought of that because I grew up in Kansas where there ain't a lot of ocean. My wife grew up in Minnesota where all the water's white. And so how in the world? And we were living in Denver. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it was just one of those things we saw a poster one day of the sailboat and said, that's cool. Let's go learn to sail. And so we did. But the way that we structured, we, we decided to set a 10-year goal. And, you know, I think that's probably takeaway number one is if you want something bad enough, set a goal and then stay focused on that goal. If it helps you towards it, do it. If it doesn't help you towards it, why are you doing it? And we Absolutely. started the real estate journey. Now, I gave that advice to someone yesterday, by the way. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. we were just talking. He's looking to get started, and he was getting a little distracted. And I said, dude, write it down. Put it at the top of your sheet of paper, and then let's list all the ways we can get you there. Yeah, I mean, it should be on the bathroom mirror. It should be on the dashboard of your car. Stay focused and stick to it. So we were following the path of real estate investment. And because we knew that when we were sailing, Obviously, we weren't going to be able to be holding typical jobs. We weren't going to be managing real estate actively. So we needed to transition from active real estate into passive. This is going to fit in great with the folks that are exploring syndication now. But we had to get there first, right, to be able to invest. So what we did was we started 1031 exchanging. And as the portfolio started to build, we began, there were a couple moves that we made because first of all, we had to get to water, right? So we moved nice. to Stanford, Connecticut, all right. where we thought this is great, we're on the water, we can do it. Now, you and I were joking about this before the show, but as soon as we got to Connecticut thinking that we were now ready for the sailboat, we realized that we had forgot to ask God for warm water. <laughs> so. Connecticut was just a couple year foray while we tried to get the heck out of Dodge. But what we did was we 1031 exchanged our properties in Colorado into properties in Connecticut ahead of time. And then when we moved to Connecticut, finally, we sold our our primary residence that we were living in. And the rules with that are, of course, if you've lived in it for two out of five years, you get to take the first $500,000 and gain tax-free. So we took that gain tax-free and we moved to Connecticut and moved into one of our former investment properties. And then we lived in that property and lived there for two years. And during that time, we started to transition our properties, investment properties to Florida. And then when we were ready, we finally said, 
sailboat water, here we come. And we moved to Florida. We sold the Connecticut property that we had now lived in for two out of the five years. And because this was prior to 2008, we got all of the gain tax-free that went into the boat fund. Where did we move? Into one of our former investment properties in in Florida. Florida. Mm -hmm. And so in in those moves, we made enough money tax-free to buy the sailboat. Now we simply had to transition this active rental portfolio. We had a couple fourplexes. We had some single families. You know, it was just a card variety kind of thing. But we started to transition it into, I guess you would call it syndications. But for me, they were just basically colleagues and friends that I had met along the way. And I handed them my money and said, yeah, you manage it, my money, let's do it. And so we did the 1031 exchange, bought the properties, turned them over to our partners. And literally 10 years to the week, we sailed away. Wow. Worked perfect. That's great. And we did it with tax-free dollars in 1031. So it's all part of what I like to call the life cycle of a real estate investor, right? The caterpillar builds the chrysalis, becomes a beautiful butterfly. And at this point in time, we're gagging over the metaphor, but still it's true that there's a life cycle. When you're young, you're active, you want to gather real estate and expand. At some point in time, you want to start to become more passive. And that's when things like syndications, triple net properties, larger rather than smaller, all work to your benefit because they take you into retirement. When your grandkids are going to wear you out anyways, you you don't need real estate to help. That's that's right. You don't need those tenants on top of it. I hear you. Uh, well, that's amazing and and super smart by you to to 1031 and 1031 again and and then you got a sailboat out of it. And uh, are you are you calling me from your sailboat right now? Is that a- oh how I wish. We're 200 <laughs> yards away. If you can, if you listen real close, you can hear the breakers. There you go. But it's 200 <laughs> yards. Okay. Uh, last uh, last. Question, a topic I want to get into really is for my personal knowledge. And I I want to know about betting 1031 exchange companies because I have have a a mentor of mine who got um, burned pretty badly on on a a 1031 exchange company and there were lawsuits involved and and all of that. Yeah, it's too bad. I'm sorry that happened to him. That's been one of the unfortunate consequences is that the IRS really hasn't paid much attention. They're more worried about the investor Mm -hmm. doing something nefarious than they are the QI. So they haven't really shored up that side of things. And about once every 10 years, somebody does do something stupid uh, with the investor's money and it's unfortunate. But the reality is that the IRS simply says that you cannot touch the money yourself. So they're obviously worried about that side of it. Mm-hmm. But then they define a qualified intermediary. And just, I wish, I can't make this up. This is truth that's so stranger than fiction. The IRS defines a qualified intermediary as one who is not disqualified. <laughs> that's in the statute. Okay. <laughs> you are disqualified only if you have a business or family relationship 
with the client. So, okay. I mean, holy cow, everybody you would trust to do your 1031 exchange cannot do your 1031 exchange because the IRS is so concerned that you're going to do something nefarious. Okay. So that's where the temptation comes into play because they're going to hold your money. You can't have control over it. And their only qualification is that they're not related to you in any way. So, yeah, holy cow, a little bit of vetting is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. So, so what do you want to look for? Longevity, demonstrated experiences. Of course, that's that's not going to be guaranteed because you never know when somebody's going to go off the deep end, right? Yeah. But it's, a, it's an indicator. Yep. They've been in business a long time. They've done it for a long time. They've got people that have done it. I, I used to be... I, don't know, I used to get kind of snarky and I would tell the little lady that was so concerned with her $100,000 exchange that I just finally one day I said, you know, ma'am, if I was going to steal money, it would not be your $100,000. It would be the $7 million that I got from this guy last week. <laughs> right, uh, right, but right. it's still, it doesn't matter whether it's their $100,000 mm-hmm. or your $7 million. It's important. Absolutely. And it needs to be protected. So what's the best way to do that? The most QIs have what is called a trust account where the money is all pooled into a trust account. Everybody's money is, is mingled together. It's attorneys have them, title companies have them, most QIs have them. Mm-hmm. I think they're a problem for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a large chunk of money that the QI can do what they want with, and they can do it very invisibly mm-hmm. because nobody has access to it. Number two, though, if your money and my money are both in that account, and all of a sudden you get a lawsuit filed against you, or you file bankruptcy, the first thing that happens is a receiver is going to be appointed for your lawsuit mm-hmm. or bankruptcy. And the first thing they're going to do is freeze every place you have money until they get it sorted out. Wow. Now, right. I don't have anything to do with that, but my money's in that account. Right. So I am not worried about me ever getting my money. That's not the point. But might the receiver take long enough that it affects my 45 or my 180 days, that's the problem. So what we did to solve this, and there's some some other QIs out there, but this is what I would ask for, because this is key. We set up individual segregated bank accounts that are FDIC insured for every exchange, which means that your money is not mingled with anybody else's money. More importantly, your money is FDIC insured that's the gold standard. Mm-hmm. And because we use a commercial bank, any amount over the normal maximums is also insured. So okay. you've got FDIC insurance, mm-hmm. your money is segregated, and we actually do that, and it's possible to do it in your name. You're a signer on the account. Now, I wait can a minute. be a signer even though I'm supposed to have a, a exactly. step away from this. And here's how we can do that because we also are signers on the account, but it's dual signatory. Mm -hmm. So it takes both your signature and ours to move money. So I joke around people and I say, well, that means that I can't take money without your signature. That protects you from me. Mm -hmm. But it also means you can't take money without my signature 
And that's what protects you from the IRS. Mm-hmm. So I think in that one simple stroke, we've separated out the issue so that there never again has to be that. So what's what's the worst in? I suppose that the bank could go out of business. Right. But I, <laughs> right. I don't know how far down the road I could go to protect sure, people. Sure. But I think that's probably so demonstrated experience, mm-hmm. longevity, segregated accounts, that and you need to be sense. a signatory on them. Yeah. And yeah. you will find that you're in pretty good shape. Absolutely. Well, thanks for, for answering that straight up. And and uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Hopefully uh, those of you guys are, are listening and, and those of you doing 1031s, uh, ask those questions because it is super, super important. So Dave, you shared so much great information with us. I have to give you a minute to to plug your business and just talk about what you do and uh, how you can help our, our listeners. Awesome. Well, you know, like I said at the beginning, I've been around long enough that some people call me the 1031 investor, but I think that's just because I'm old. I'm not gonna take any credit for that. It's just longevity. Uh, but I have, I've been doing 1031s for myself and for others for over 20 years now. So I've enjoyed the power and I love nothing more than helping others take their investing career where they wanna go. So if you wanna get a hold of me, the best place to do it is www the1031investor.com and if you go there you will find I don't know 30 or 40 videos that are all broken down with different strategic points we've got calculators for you everything that you need and you can contact me directly through there that's great well thanks so much again Dave uh, we appreciate that we appreciate you sharing your story on uh, the uh, the sailboat and and of course digging in on uh, syndicating uh, multifamilies and uh, 1031 exchanges and and all of that um, such good info and is only going to become a larger and larger topic I'm sure you're going to be getting that question a lot more moving forward because uh, that's what everyone's going to want to do next uh, so, so I Absolutely. Think, uh, very timely. Definitely appreciate it. Uh, guys, check out the 1031investor.com. Check out our show notes. Uh, go to uh, truemultifamily.show to see uh, all of Dave's contact information and uh, summary of this show. And uh, please leave a rating and review. We hope you enjoyed this episode. See you next time. Thanks for listening to another episode. Check out our website at truemultifamily.show. And if you have an amazing story to tell, share it on our Facebook community, and you might just be the next guest on the show. We're also on all other social networks. Just search True Multifamily. I'm really, really proud to have this show produced by our company, On Air Brands. Check us out at onairbrands.com. We also have an incredible, unique podcasting event that we would love for you to be a part of. Check that out at podmax.co.